Man, that light is bright. Okay. But <clears throat> my first two concerns have been addressed successfully. I made it up the stairs without tripping. And uh, I have the microphone turned on. So <clears throat> we're good. We're going to hop right into uh, John 13. We're going to finish chapter 13 today. That's verses 18 through 38. As soon as they come on the screen here. Oh, okay, yeah, might need that. There <clears throat> you go, Jed. Thank you, Jed, appreciate it. All right, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he, he died. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen... You will believe that I am He. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the table or at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus, Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will, not be with, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Let's pray. God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would come that you would let me step aside, and that you would speak through me today. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable this morning in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm not Trevor. You probably guessed that by now. Um, <clears throat> Trevor asked me a few weeks ago, preach. In fact, he'd asked me earlier in the year to preach, and then uh, Mary died, 
and COVID came. Um, we couldn't do it back in March, but he asked me a few weeks ago, and, and I said yes, and, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, Trevor would turn his microphone literally over to me for at least this one Sunday, probably never do it again, but I appreciate him doing it today. And so I want to thank Trevor. It's always a pleasure, it's always a real privilege to me to be able to stand up here and, and to proclaim here or anywhere else the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to thank Trevor. I want to thank Jed, who's been great in helping me uh, this week. And uh, Jed, I think next week is his last week here, officially. And then he goes off to do whatever Jed's going to do and, and comes back and joins us again. But <clears throat> that's probably not very Christian of me. Actually, I know Jed will succeed, and, and he'll do great. Um, I appreciate uh, Kelly and, and the folks up there in the, in the crow's nest that are helping, and they do a lot. That we, They're really behind the scenes. I appreciate uh, the sound. I remember Mary used to uh, <clears throat> use the lights or, or control the lights. I always tease her after church that, boy, the lights today were the best I've ever seen. Thank you. That was great. And uh, I really want to thank the praise team. I don't think they get enough support and love around here. Um, <clears throat> that's not a criticism of Trevor, by the way. Uh, but really, the super blessing this morning to me. I, that last song was extremely powerful. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your talents with us. Um, I want to give you a little bit of the setting today. I'm going to get right into this and, uh, and talk. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, but I want to kind of give you the setting before we get into the actual uh, words of the end of chapter 13. This is a Thursday night. It's Passover. The lambs are being prepared by the priest and the officials to be slaughtered the next day. And while they're preparing those perfect lambs, God is preparing his perfect lamb for a sacrifice the next day as well. This section of Scripture is unique. In chapters really 13 through the end of 17, if you have a red-letter Bible, most of the letters are going to be read. Most of the words are read. And, and that's because John is recording here Jesus' last words to his disciples. He has a lot to tell them. This is called in some places the upper room discourse because they're in the upper room. It's the night that he's going to be betrayed, the day before he dies, the night before he dies, just a few hours left before he hangs on the cross. And I want you to notice something, that Jesus is focused not on himself and on his upcoming suffering. He's focused on his disciples. And by extension, he's focused on you and me. In these next few chapters, he's going to give them, like this chapter here, a commandment to love one another. He's going to give them comfort in chapter 14. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14 as well, and, and throughout these next few chapters. He's going to instruct them to abide in him. He's going to tell them that no one can take away their joy. He's going to comfort them to know that he has overcome the world. And he's going to, in chapter 17, give his high priestly prayer, where he prays for them, and he specifically prays for you. This is all recorded by John, almost verbatim. And I've always wondered, how in the world did John, how could he remember all of this to record? I mean, I don't know if you're like me, I, I can't remember... You know what I had for breakfast yesterday morning, and yet he's recording these words. I'm sure he wasn't there dictating as Jesus was talking. It came back to him later, and many think that John's gospel was written much later when John was maybe in his 90s, which gives me a lot of encouragement that he could remember into his 90s what was said. 
But if you read chapter 14, if you turn the page of your Bible over just one page or swipe just one swipe on your phone, and if you look at chapter 14, verse 26, John says this. This is Jesus talking. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and listen to this, will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will remind you John, and all the rest of the disciples, of everything I have said to you. So John has faithfully recorded through the inspiration of Scripture what Jesus has told him. I put these uh, last 21 verses into three categories, and it's, I call it kind of a sandwich, because you've got Jesus' predictions, predictions of betrayal, that's the top bun, if you will, Betrayal of Judas, and then Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. That's kind of the bottom bun. And in between, we have Jesus talking about his glory and God's glory and this new commandment. And so we have prediction, commandment, prediction. And so I'm going to go through these and hopefully go through these uh, pretty efficiently. We were coming home yesterday. Uh, I was telling some folks earlier, we were coming home yesterday from Beaver Lake. We were visiting some friends, and it was kind of late at night, and and uh, Nina had a question. She said, uh, Dad, um, you're preaching tomorrow, right? And I said, yes. And she said, did Trevor give you a time limit? Um, <clears throat> I said, no, he didn't mention that. But uh, I will keep that in mind. So great encouragement to Nina, if no one else. I will try to be efficient this morning as we go. But uh, I do want to go through these scriptures. And, and hopefully, you'll take something home with you. That'll be a blessing. Hopefully, you'll walk out of those doors a little bit different than when you walked in. The first thing, Jesus predicts his betrayal. Verses 18 and 19, verse 20, Jesus says this, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I tell you now before it happens, verse 19, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Verse 21, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. Here's what's always troubled me about Judas. <clears throat> Maybe it's troubled you as well. I've talked to Trevor on Tuesday about it. Um, why did Jesus choose Judas? If you go back to the sixth chapter, I'm not going to do it this morning, but if you go to the sixth chapter of Luke, Jesus prays all night. He's up on a mountain praying all night. He comes back from the mountain, and he chooses his 12 apostles, and the last one he chooses is Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything. He knows it before it ever happens, and he knew that Judas would betray him. So why did Jesus choose Judas? Well, we, we learn a little bit about that in Scripture here this morning. Look at verse 18. If you could pop up verse 18, just a second. Um, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. He just talked about washing feet and sending these folks out to be apostles. He said, I'm not talking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. See, Jesus knows everything. I know those I've chosen. But this is to fulfill Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me, and I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, that's verse 19, you will believe that I am he. So the first thing he says is, I chose Judas, and I am telling you about us tonight 
In order way, you'll see in your notes is uh, Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9. He who lifted his heel, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Scripture was important to Jesus. That the Bible, which at that time was only the Old Testament, that that was important. Have you ever noticed that? For example, when Jesus was tempted right after his baptism, he was driven out in the desert, was tempted for 40 days, and Satan comes to him at the end of those 40 days and tempts him. What's Jesus' response? Deuteronomy, it is written. At the beginning of his ministry, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah 61. When he defends himself against those uh, accusers, mainly the spiritual religious leaders of the day, he defends himself with Scripture. When he's on the cross, (laughs) Jesus quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In post-resurrection, Jesus comes back, Luke 24. He comes back to his disciples. They have dinner and Bible study. He opens the Scriptures to them, and starting with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them that the Christ must die and suffer and be raised three days later. Scripture was important to Jesus, and Scripture was also important to his initial disciples. Do you notice when the day of Pentecost comes and Peter stands up with the other apostles, they don't just say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, believe in him. They quote Scripture, Joel, and Psalms, and different Scriptures, and they do that throughout their ministry. Is Scripture important to Jesus? It ought to be important to us. In fact, Jesus said, Matthew 5.12, or 5.17, I've come not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I've come not to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Scripture has to be important to us. If no other reason, it was important to Jesus. I'm going to read you a short quote here. It's from a pastor from Scotland. His name is John Tidwell, and this is from Table Talk magazine from October of 2015. Here's what he writes. Scriptural decline, or spiritual, excuse me, spiritual decline within the church rarely begins with overt heresy or full-orbed persecution. It often starts with God's people when God's people are bored with the claims of the truth. That is, when we know the truth but are no longer gripped by it. This is why the local church is so important for countering biblical illiteracy as well as upholding the commitment to biblical inerrancy. We gather together Lord's Day to Lord's Day in all our Lord's Day to Lord's Day in order to be awakened from our spiritual lethargy by the ministry of the Word. In all our strivings, we must continue to be a people of the book. We must love it, study it, meditate on it, teach it, defend it, and live by it. So Jesus, part of the reason that he chose Judas was to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, I think Jesus also, we see this in 19, Verse 19, and you can put it back up there, so that the disciples would believe in him. See, after he said this, there we go. I'm telling you now before it happens, why? So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. So he did it also for the benefit of the disciples so that they would believe in him. You read John's gospel, his favorite word is pistio. It's a Greek word for believe. 
And John uses it 98 times. I Googled it yesterday. John uses it 98 times. That's one-third of all the times the word belief is used in the Bible. It's in the book of John. It's, it's important. And he uses it in various places. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that those who believe in him shall not perish. Believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I thought of John chapter 11 several times in there when Lazarus is dead. So then he, sent, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe, but let us go to him. John 20, uh, that same chapter, verses 25, 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who uh, believes in me, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes, there it is again, in me will never die. Do you believe this? Three times in those two verses. Look at 38 through 42 of John chapter 11. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was the cave. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, she had a good point, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there will be a bad odor. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. He stinketh. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you, what, believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that I knew that you were always, you always hear me, but I said this, why? For the benefit of the people standing here, why? That they may believe that you sent me. John 20, 31, the whole reason he wrote this book, John says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by what? Believing. You may have life in his name. Pretty important. Pistuo is really important to John. John, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses it 98 times. And when he says that, the word belief doesn't mean like we use the word belief a lot of times. I believe Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. Okay, that's good. It's not a mental assent. I believe President Trump will win the next election. I believe that Biden will win the next election. It doesn't, it's not talking about that kind of belief. It's talking about a trust. It's talking about placing your faith and your hope in him and only in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the belief that John's talking about. So he wanted them to believe. And the third reason, and it's not in the scripture, but I, I, I come by this. I think Jesus chose Judas to be among the disciples for these three years, to walk with them, to talk with them, to show them as a warning that there will be heresies, there will be hypocrisy among you. There will be those who appear to be Christians, but really are not. The greatest threat to the early church was not persecution from outside, it was corruption from the inside. The greatest persecution to the church wasn't the Roman authorities, it wasn't the persecution from the Sanhedrin. It was the hip hypocrisy and it was the false apostles within the church. Acts 20, verse 29 through 31, if you could pull that up. Here's Paul. He's talking to the elders in Apostle Paul, and here's what he said to them as he was leaving. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. For even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples from them. 
So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Jesus, I think, gave the disciples a living example and warning that they need to be on their guard about false apostles. And by extension, the story of Judas is a warning to you and to me about hypocrisy. There are many in the church that profess the faith, but as R.C. Sproul said, do not possess the faith. We are, if we are to be true, and we need to be clear about this to ourselves, not only do you confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth, but do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? It's both profession. It's not just walking down an aisle or raising a hand and signing a card. That's not getting you into heaven. I'm sorry to break the news to you. It's not the profession of faith. It's the profession combined with the possession faith. So I think that's a warning not only to disciples, but also to us. Okay. So Jesus then dips the bread in the cup, hands it to Judas. Judas then takes the bread. And I think some people, some commentators I read, think this is one last effort, because this was a sign of respect that you would dip the bread and offer it to somebody. Jesus did that and offered it to Judas. It was a signal to John and Peter who he was talking about. And I think, though, he looked at Judas and gave him, imagine this one last chance to change his mind, but Judas didn't. It says Satan entered him at that time, and he left. I want to, if you could pull up verses 27 and then 31. Um, because they are similar verses. In 27, yeah, 27. No, that's not it. Is it going to be all right? Can I just read it? Okay. In verse 27, it says, As soon as Judas took the bread... Satan entered into him. And then verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Judas takes the bread. As soon as he took it, Satan entered him, and then he leaves, and it was night. And remember what Trevor has taught us again and again. It was night means there was unbelief. There was unbelief. It may have been dark in Jerusalem that night, but it was really dark in the heart of Judas. That's where it was the blackest. And so he heads out that night, and he goes to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew what he was going to do, and it was night, and it was dark. Then verse 31, this is the middle part. Jesus turns to his disciples. He's, uh, Judas has left, and it says, Now the Son of Man... If you could pull up 31 and 32, I want to read these verses to you. This is Jesus talking about his glory and God's glory. Verses 31 and 32 would be the next verse. <clears throat> that's too far. Okay. When he was gone, that's perfect. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You guys all understand that, so I'll just go to the next verse. 
It's real easy. I'm just kidding. That is a very difficult, I think, confusing verse. And uh, I think John, or John records in Jesus' high priestly prayer something very similar in verse, seven, verse 1 of chapter 17. Jesus prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So what we're talking about here is what I have written down as reciprocal glorification. Reciprocal glorification. Um, Jesus says that he, in what he's about to do, in going to the cross, and suffering for the cross, and going through his passion, and then arising from the dead, and ascending into heaven, that will bring glory to God. And God is saying, by doing that, Jesus, you're bringing glory not only to me, you're bringing glory to yourself. You see, the wonder about this, and glorified means, of course, lifted up, or exalted. We sang that this morning, he is glorified. The cross is really... Two sides of the same coin. On the one side, the glory of the cross is that Jesus would die for sinners, would lay down his life for you and for me, even though we don't deserve it. In other words, that Jesus would give his life as a ransom for many. That's one wonder of the cross. The other wonder is that God would give his one and only Son to die for us. And so by Jesus dying on the cross, he gives glory not only to himself and the Father, and by Allowing Jesus or putting Jesus on the cross, God brings glory both to Jesus and to himself. It's, it's a reciprocal thing. The more glory Jesus brings to God, the more glory God brings to Jesus. And he is to be glorified. And that's an old-fashioned word, but it means, again, to be exalted or lifted up. My question to you is, in your life, do you glorify God? The Westminster Confession the first question is, what is the chief aim of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I think that is a really smart way to put it. Our f- chief aim of any person who is a Christian is to glorify God and by doing so enjoy Him forever. Jesus then gives a new commandment, verses 34 and 35. If you could pop those up there, 34 and 35. Jesus says, first of all, he says, uh, my children, he's talking to them in very tender terms. He says in verse 34, a new command I give you. A new command I give you, love one another. As As I have loved you, you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? If you love one another. If you love one another. And when I read this, and you may read it and have the same reaction, I'm thinking, well, this isn't a new commandment. I mean, Jesus, you know Leviticus 39 or Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 18. You quoted it earlier in your ministry. Love your neighbors yourself. That was written 1,500 years. Well, here's what I think he means by new. And I think it's the back end of that first sentence. He says, a new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you. It's new in the sense of the new context it's going to be in. John 15, 12, that's what we have here. It says the same thing. My command is this, love each other, how? As I have loved you. That's the difference. That's the new command. We're not to love under our own power, love as we would like to love, but to love as Christ loved us. What kind of love is that? Well, first of all, it's 
a selfless love. It's a sacrificial love. It's not a love that looks like, well, what can I get out of it? It's a love that is selfless and sacrificial. If you could pull up Romans 8, for example, Romans 5, 8, 5, 8, Romans, there you go. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. How? And gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at 1 John, 1 John 4, 7 uh, through 12. John expands on this. Dear friends, let us love one another. And this is in the epistle of John, so he's writing to the church. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son, that's what I talked about earlier, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, that sacrificial way, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Not a human-based love, an agape, a God-based love, a sacrificial love, and a selfless love. And I'd say one other thing. It's a love that loves in truth. It's a love that loves with its eyes wide open. Jesus loved his disciples, including Peter, not necessarily because of who they were, but really despite who they were. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we are to love sincerely. We are to love truthfully, sincerely, and with eyes wide open, with faults that we all have. We're not to love others because they're just like us or because we think they're great or because of all their great qualities. We're to love them, and maybe that's part of it, but we're to love them not necessarily because of those things, but sometimes in spite of their characteristics, despite those things we may find personally objectionable. I was at a prayer meeting down at uh, the TA back when they used to have a really good buffet breakfast, which I really miss, and um, we had a prayer group there. It was an old group. We were, there was a bunch of us there. One of them was uh, Norman Jones. Many of you know Norman. And uh, Norman been with that group since the 70s, I think. And I was there. This was like in 2005 or six. And we were there. We were enjoying our breakfast. And just a few minutes after we started, this guy came in to join us. <laughs> His name is Bill McLemore. And Bill... Uh, how can I say it? Uh, Bill did not look like your typical Baptist preacher. He, he was bald. He had tattoos all down, both arms, on his neck. He's this real big, bulky guy. Came in like a lost guy from a biker conference. And he sits down with us, and he starts telling us a story about how he developed this prison ministry. He'd spent many years in jail. He found Jesus, really found Jesus in jail, and he starts ex you know, expressing his faith to those around him, and he has this great ministry, and he finds, he starts his church down around uh, Granby. I mean, just a guy on fire for God. 
And after the meeting, we kind of hugged him and said, boy, we, we want you to come back, and he did. And I remember walking out with Norman, Norman looked at me, and he said, when he first walked in the room, I judged his socks off. I thought I was better than him. I judged his socks off. And Norman admitted, he's closer to God than I am. Maybe than I ever hoped to be. We need to love those who are not just like us. We need to love those who are not like us, who have failed us, who have continued to fail us, who will fail us in the future just like these disciples. That's how Jesus loved them. And that's how we're to love. Let me ask you a hard question. How are you doing with that commandment? And by the way, it's not a suggestion. It's not a maybe. It's a must. It's a commandment. We love one another. And Jesus tells us why. We love one another so that others will know that we belong to Christ. Jesus says, they're going to know you, disciples. They're going to know you, Peter, James, and John, all you other guys. They're going to know you. Not because you're great preaching, although you're going to preach pretty well. Not because of your miracles, although you're going to raise people from the dead. Not because of how big your church is going to be, and not by how much power or money or prestige or whatever else. You're, they're not going to know you by that. They're going to know you that you're mine if you love one another. That's, that's my stamp on a true Christian. Does he love? How are you doing with that commandment? The third thing we see, and go to verse 36 in our study, and then I'll close, is Jesus predicts Peter's denial. See, Jesus knows everything, and he knows that Peter's going to deny him. In verse 36, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told you, the Jews, this is back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, so I will tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then the next verse, Peter Simon asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, do you all know? He answered this, and Jesus predicted this, and it turned out to be true really quick. Less than 12 hours. Will you really lay on your life? The alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning. You will disown me three times. I have two thoughts about this section. First, a warning, and then an encouragement. Let me give you the warning first. The warning is to be humble. You see the self-sufficiency here. Peter is saying, I will follow you. I will do this. I will lay down my life. It's me, God. I'm going to do it. It's the sense of self-sufficiency. And pride. Can you pull up Proverbs 16, 18? Peter knew his Bible well, but he had forgotten some, uh, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I think that describes him pretty well here. I like college football. So glad Missouri's going to play this year. I hope they play well. But as I was watching college football, as I am wont to do on a Saturday afternoon, used to, uh, ABC used to have uh, one of their commentators, Lou Holtz, 
I uh, remember he used to coach at uh, Notre Dame, Arkansas, Army, lots of places. Great coach, great commentator. And I was watching him one time. And if you look for it, if you have your spiritual antennas out, you will get theological truth anywhere. And I got it from Lou Holtz that day. And I don't know who he was talking about. He was talking about some team or quarterback or coach. But here's what it said, and I almost just dropped dead when he said this. He said, <clears throat> listen carefully. Lou Holtz said this, be humble or be humbled. Be humble or be humbled. We must be humble. We must remember how weak we are in ourselves and rely not on our own strength. Please don't rely on your own strength. John, don't rely on my own strength. Rely on the strength of Christ. Proverbs, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul talks about this. But he said to me, this is Christ talking to Paul about his physical pain, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, not Paul's, my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. I love what Paul says when he comes into Corinth, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He said, I came to you with fear and weakness and much trembling. Paul came with humility. And that's how we're to enter life, to go through life, is to be humble. To avoid being humbled, as Paul, Peter was here. So there's the warning, be humble. Here's the encouragement. I don't know about you, but I take a lot of encouragement from Peter. Anybody here ever messed up? That's rhetorical. Anybody here ever, as I heard one Scottish preacher say, made a hash of it? Made a bunk of it? Anybody here ever really messed up royally? Well, Peter did. I take a lot of encouragement of that because if God can use Peter, and he did, and Peter messed up, you know, Jesus had another prediction about Peter that night. If you go to Luke 22, 31 and 32, just before he talked to him about denying him, Jesus told Peter something else that night. Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon. That was Peter's name before Jesus changed it. Simon, Simon, that's an expression of tenderness. Satan has asked to sift you as we, and boy, is he going to. But Jesus says this, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus made another prediction. I'm going to use you, Peter. You're going to make a hash of it tonight. You're going to really mess up. You're going to deny me three times. But I'm still going to use you. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. Romans 8.28, Paul writes, you may know this verse, and we know, see the certainty of it, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, all things. You messed up? Good. That's okay. As long as you're in Christ, that's okay. Because if Rick Warren says, God will take your mess and make it a message. 
you will take your test and make it a testimony. You see, Peter got weak. And then when Jesus came back, he restored Peter. And what's great is that 50 days later, 50 days later, Peter, who could not admit Christ in front of a slave girl, stood up, declared the gospel, and that day 3,000 souls were saved. Yeah, he could use him. In fact, when Peter said, verse 37, I will daily lay down my life for you, He didn't know how true his words were because with Christ's strength, he did lay down his life for Christ. So please take great encouragement because I know you're human. You may not act like it sometimes, but you're human and I'm human and we will mess up and we will make a hash of it and we will make a million mistakes. But God can take those mistakes In fact, he's promised in his word he will. And my theory is that Peter, because he knew how weak he was in his own strength and knew what it was like to mess up and could encourage those brothers, that's what Jesus told him. You'll come back and you're going to do what, Peter? You're going to encourage. And so my prayer for you is you'll take your mistakes, take your mess, and you'll make it a message for Christ. Let's pray.